Thanks for joining us today on the season finale of Innovation and the Digital Enterprise. We've got something a little different today. I founded a group about four years ago called the Chicago Innovation Roundtable. The purpose of the roundtable is to connect visionary leaders here in Chicago to learn, share, and empower each other to create greater growth through innovation. Each year, we host a summit and bring in various thought leaders to share their experiences, their insights, and their opinions on a variety of innovation topics. Today, I wanted to share with you the highlights from each thought leader's discussion. Without further ado, our first speaker up is Betsy Ziegler, CEO of 1871. She shared her insights on corporate innovation and business strategy. So one of the things I talk to a lot of leaders about is this idea that the most successful companies should be the ones that are most worried about the future. And this can be a head scratcher for some, but the point here is that the most successful companies are the ones whose revenue streams have not yet been disrupted. They are the ones that are continuing to stay ahead of the pack. And as soon as you start to get your revenue streams start to get disrupted, you are playing catch up. And that tends to look like where the world outside your house is moving faster than the world inside your house. And if that's the case, the probability that you are starting to be on a downward slope is very, very high. But innovation is an exploration challenge, not an execution challenge. All companies started out as an idea. All companies started out in the explore phase, uh, which is more of a search function where you're searching for, am I actually solving a customer's problem? Do I have the ability to scale this solution? As the company gets bigger, the innovation challenge is more uh, management and execution. And you have KPIs that are focused on managing, but when you use KPIs focused on managing and apply them to exploration, it doesn't work. And I think it'll resonate with many of you that it's still innovation if you're focused on efficiency, it's just a different kind of innovation. It's not growth innovation. And there's a struggle sometimes when I ask companies who owns innovation and some CEOs say, well, everybody does. And in some ways that might be true. In other ways, that's very challenging, right? If everybody owned marketing, what would happen? If everybody owned finance, what would happen? A hundred years ago, those were not functions on the org chart like, like they have been for the last several decades. Where does innovation sit on the org chart? And how do you think about innovation when you're trying to drive efficiency and you're being measured by the market? Or how you think about driving growth innovation where you're measured more like venture capital style? And how do you think about the theme of failure? Jeff Bezos says, that failure and innovation are inseparable twins. You can't have one without the other. Amazon is probably the best example of a large company that really embraces failure. They're constantly trying things, knowing that a bunch of them aren't gonna work. And then how you think about the kind of people you need to work in those organizations. So there's this struggle between innovation strategy and business strategy that's inherent in the innovation process as companies get bigger, which means that your job uh, is harder and harder and harder. I don't know how many of you have gone through kind of a process where you, you have an idea marketplace, you got these ideas that come in at the top of the funnel and you go through some process 
by which one drops off the out the bottom and then all your time and energy goes into that one but the process to get to the one you know has a lot of false precision embedded in it and some research from IDEO would suggest that those teams that are pursuing five or more ideas in parallel are significantly more uh, successful than those that don't. And I'm not talking about spend five times the money. I'm saying take the same budget and cut it in fists, so 20% each. You do some testing, you figure out what works, and then you double down on the things that work. So in terms of what you should do, it's having a point of view on where the world is actually going and how you're going to use innovation to respond generate a lot of ideas and making sure that you are celebrating the things you tried, even if they didn't work, because you have to give psychological safety to, if you want people to try things, your incentive structure and your performance management structure and all that have to be reinforcers to them trying things that might fail. Next up, we have Scott Prue, Chief Technology Officer of CSG International. He joined us to talk about how DevOps capabilities can transform software delivery, speed, and profitability. Here are some of the highlights from his discussion. Everyone thinks DevOps is about engineering and automation practices. And to be clear, that's a very important piece of DevOps. But um, there's some other things underneath here, uh, system thinking, organizational design, leadership. Leadership is vitally important. You can't do DevOps without strong leadership, the cultural philosophies, and measurement. So why is DevOps a huge game changer? Well, everyone wants to go faster. I haven't heard anyone that says, you know what? I really like to go slower in my delivery. (laughs) Everyone wants to go faster. So the other thing we hear is that they want to be more stable and we want to make more money and we want to have happier people. So at the end of the day, who really doesn't want all of those things? Everyone wants it. And really DevOps has a lot of techniques to unlock all these things. And often we think that going faster is the antithesis of kind of being more stable. But what we know from the industry research and from our experience is that you can both go faster and be more stable. And both of those things are correlated together. And if you can kind of do this, you will make more money because you can actually deliver your goods, i.e. features in your software to your customers faster. And of course, happier people is, is what we really need to do this. So this is kind of my uh, definition of, of DevOps. You know, the, the short tagline is the human, humane way to make tech uh, sustainable, but it's really the combination of this leadership, lean systems thinking, these cultural philosophies, you know, measurement, the engineering practices that allow us to deliver and operate high quality services at high velocity. And we continuously improve and learn to delight our customers and our employees to dominate the market. And there's a bunch of phases that we went through kind of in our transformation, which started, you know, around the time frame of probably about 2008 to really look at the types of things that were holding us back. Um, And it really started with Agile, right? It started with looking at, you know, lean thinking across the organization, looking at things like really the effect of Taylorism, you know, really kind of creating siloed organizations by role. And then also something that's called Conway's Law, which Conway's Law really states that your your software will actually reflect the organizational design that you have. And we kind of had those things. We created cross-functional teams. We went, you know, from organizations that did design, that did build, and that did test to uh, cross-functional teams that did design, build, test. We did a massive investment in continuous integration and continuous deployment. And you'll see actually how important that actually is to DevOps. It's, it is a key enabler, test automation, shared telemetry, 
reducing batch sizes. We used to have 18 month releases, we went to quarter releases, and now we do uh, releases, you know, pretty much every day. And then um, shared operations teams. Uh, those are teams that instead of having separate teams that did our QA environments and that did production, we created, you know, one set of operations teams that supported all environments. Um, and so that they got to actually practice, you know, managing the software every day. And those were huge improvements. You know, the last kind of piece of this transformation really focused a bit around product and portfolio management, which was really important to improve the product management and the DevOps relationship. So product managers, you know, they were mainly focused on, hey, how do we create great features for our customers? And to be clear, that's a good thing to do, but it kind of was really the understanding that there was a lot of other stuff to do kind of in, in the environment. Um, so we did things like align incentives. So we had both the product managers and the engineering operations team share something called impact minutes, which is really a, a measurement of how impactful our outages are. Think of it of like a, a blast kind of radius measurement of how long an issue takes and how many customers it impacts. But we had everyone get on the same incentive plan with that. And at first, you know, the product manager is like, well, I, I can't affect the operability of this product and the discussions I had, well, yes, you can, you can prioritize things like technical debt, improvement in operations, instead of just focusing on features for our customers. We started treating operations, not just as an engineering problem, but as a product problem too. So we really kind of surfaced the, the fact that, hey, our customers were also asking for better stability and taking those to product and saying, look, you know, CIOs at our customers are saying that you're down too often, you're too impactful to my business. We need to get those priorities into the product backlog. Um, we also aligned and invest in modernization and tech debt. We started using product value streams and not projects. In other words, we, we started to organize how we do work around these product value streams. And that even includes our IT group who used to work in projects. And now we actually have everyone work in really a product orientation. There's a great book by Mick Kirsten uh, about that called From Project to Product. We worked really hard on holistic work visibility, bringing together all epics, which are these big, huge rocks, features, incidents, service requests, CRQs into one list for the teams so they could prioritize across all work types and stop prioritizing intra work types and silos. Um, we worked a lot on portfolio intake and whip limiting at the portfolio level. So instead of doing 200 big efforts you know, at once, we cut that down and we now do probably about 60 or 70 large efforts at a time. And then the next kind of set of things, we, we connected people to the strategy, focused on work-life balance for our people, did a lot of work on release on demand, which is like releasing when you're ready almost every day. Uh, and then we got rid of CAB, uh, Change Advisory Board, and um, the kind of dreaded you know, process to go through approvals of changes. We've decentralized that completely, and we put that in the hands of the people who actually know how the software works and have a much better understanding of what is risky and impactful. They own that now. There is no cap. A very radical thing to do in, in large organizations that have established idle practices. Next, we have Dustin Kirkland, CPO of Apex Clearing. He joined us to talk about bringing ideas to life through effective product management. Here are some of my favorite segments from his fireside chat. You know, product is one of those things where it's like, oh, you want to build a better mousetrap. You know, do you wait for the world to tell you we need a better mousetrap? Do you come up and, and say like, I know what you need, much like, you know, the old Henry Ford quote, if I asked my customers what they wanted, they'd ask for a faster horse. And, uh, you know, where does the genesis for good product ideas come from? You know, is there a is there a pattern? You know, what are your thoughts? 
we strike a balance between have to strike a balance between creating that product that no one has asked for, but the entire world will want as soon as, as soon as we offer it. And there are, there are times and places where we try to do that. Uh, there are other times and places where uh, we've got to listen to our customers. We've got to make adjustments or changes to our, our, our feature set, our product roadmap uh, based very directly on what can have immediate impact on the business. How do you balance and get, try and get the timing right with product? I mean, you know, that's probably one of the tougher parts of everything. Uh, two other open source projects I've participated in, Kubernetes and OpenStack, were quarterly, basically quarterly based to, to some extent. A bit of variability there, but more or less. Um, those felt more frenetic, just not long enough to really sink your teeth in and get the big things done. Um, of course, it would happen, but it was always a bit bit slower and, and, and a little more friction. And so at Apex, I sort of split the difference and we found a really nice balance over the last couple of years following a three cycles per year model. One, two, three, we, we give them numbers, uh, the year 21 and then ABC, 21A, 21B, 21C. And those are our major cycles, milestones. We're software as a service, we're SaaS, we're agile. So within the cycle, teams release and push to production at whatever pace they need to. Um, but from a product and a planning perspective, the commitments we make to clients and customers, to our investors, our stakeholders, we will point at, yeah, we're going to do that in 21C. We're going to do that in 22A. I tell you what, it's going to take us a little bit longer. That's probably a 23A or B timeframe. And it gives us a little bit of flexibility and the ability to put things into to bigger long-term buckets, but we meticulously plan a given cycle. And so we do that three times a year. And this is one of the lessons learned um, that I, was a major flaw in the, the, the previous ways I saw this done. Uh, we discount a couple of weeks for holidays over the course of the year. So we have three 16-week cycles, exactly 16 weeks, 16 plus 16 plus 16 is 48. And then we discount four weeks of the year. We just kind of carve that off to the side for Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving, 4th of July. We, we just sort of built that into the plan. So we start the beginning of those cycles. There's three cycles per year. Uh, the product managers start the cycle about four weeks before the cycle actually begins with engineering. And we call that the prioritization. So the product managers groom the backlog. So we got a backlog of, God, it's probably a thousand uh, requests that are well formatted. We use a, a CUJ format, critical user journey format, who, what, when, why we don't get into the how it's a simple entry in a, in a spreadsheet, uh, essentially a database or uh, we export to a spreadsheet. We groom that backlog. We prioritize it. We score it. We come up with the list. We end up with for, for a team of our size, we end up with a list of around 200. Uh, it was 197 items we took on last cycle, 21B. We're at 248 we're, we're considering for 21C, uh, which will start in about three weeks, okay? So we start by taking on those priorities. We map those through a process of product managers working with tech leads and, and writing PRDs, product requirement documents. We map the, that list of requirements to the fixed amount of time, 16 weeks, and the fixed amount of resources that's our couple of hundred engineers and, and each product manager does it with their, with their engineers. And then we put a stake in the ground at week one and we say, these are the commitments. And we've got force ranks, critical, high, medium, low. Then we've got a number value, one, two, three, four, five. The whole number is our is the major priority, which maps to critical, med high, medium, low. And then 
there's a dotted decimal to the hundredth digit trying to break the ties. So 1.01s and 2.35s. And it's mainly to know that a 2.35 is slightly higher than the 2.37. Now, inevitably, we end up with what we call late breaking items and we treat those special. So a late breaking item is something that shows up unexpectedly. We didn't plan for, but we've got to take care of. And usually that preempts something else. We almost always have to trade out some other work, which is a, a short discussion. Uh, so we had, we write a one pager, which is called a scope change uh, document. Uh, we move some things in, we move some things out and then boom, we got back to work. And that's not a heavyweight bureaucratic process. It was a matter of uh, a day or two to, to make those changes. How do you course correct at a more granular level? Ideally, there'd be fungibility across a bunch of those resources. And there are places where we've, we've achieved that. Uh, solutions engineers are more or less plug and play. I've got a rock star set of solutions engineers that can move in one customer and out the other. And we could have developed specialists who only know one product inside and out, only know one client inside and out. And we decided against that. Generalists, they know a little bit about everything and they're very, uh, very pluggable. Uh, we've also achieved that with our business analysts. So our, our BAs are a, a group of really sharp junior people, typically a science-y, math-y, business-y background that can handle a lot of different tasks. And when one's out or overworked or working on a, a, an M&A, uh, you know, some, some sort of merger and acquisition or something like that, the next one can step in. Um, and so those are two places we built from the ground up with that in mind. Last but not least, we have Catherine Clay. Catherine is the EVP of Data and Access Solutions at SIBO Global Markets. She joined us to talk about not only Zambonis, but also global markets and innovation. Here are some of my favorite parts of her discussion. I couldn't help think about the parallels of the Zamboni, this slow moving 9.3 miles an hour machine on the ice, and that of trading and how they too have really in parallel progressed in similar ways. And if you think about the Zamboni, here's a 61 year history of a magnificent machine that still today captures 80% market share in the ice making world that has not been disrupted. Um, and I look at that in parallel with like the technology, SIBO as an exchange, how do we keep innovating? Here you have Frank Zamboni's family owned business out of California, still building these machines, 10,000 plus, I think it's 12,000 now in 68 countries across the globe, flourishing. It's a brand name. It's like Kleenex. Zamboni means any sort of ice making machine. Uh, and, and then in parallel, we have SIBO and trading and how that's progressed. So whether it's a family owned business or a large publicly traded company, how do you stay innovative? How do you continue to innovate? Because we're all, you know, after that book, Innovator's Dilemma came out, I don't know about you guys, but that really stuck with me as to think about how, if you're not moving forward, if you're not always advancing, how that can be very disruptive uh, and you get disrupted. And so when I think about my role at SIBO, I'm always trying to balance the uh, status quo, what we need to do to serve our customers, to meet their needs and their ever-changing needs, but not lose sight of where we really need to be going in terms of innovative thinking. The big ideas that really revolutionize the business going forward. 
how do you keep that innovative spirit? Because I think the answer is the same in many aspects, but it also is different depending on where you're at. And what I mean by that is before I came to SIBO, and I did come to SIBO through the acquisition of the company that I led, Aliveball, which was a derivatives data and analytics company, there were many challenges that we had to meet as a startup. They're very different challenges than we meet at SIBO, but there were challenges nonetheless. And as we came into SIBO, I thought, how in the world uh, am I going to now navigate this huge company with an entrepreneurial mindset and not lose spirit, not lose enthusiasm for, uh, not lose drive for the advancement of the product suite. And so the challenges from an entrepreneurial perspective just became challenges in a corporate setting, meaning you have to go through InfoSec, you know, networking. There's just a bunch of layers to get through, all of which require persistence uh, and ongoing effort. But one of the things I always try to do, and is why I love what Patrick does and why I participate in events like this, is because I think it is incumbent upon the leaders of these types of organizations to put away the daily work sometimes. That'll be there in an hour. It'll be there over the weekend. It'll be there next week. And to really connect with thought leaders in this space about what's next, how to be innovative. How should we be thinking about where digitalization, globalization, customization, all of these trends that are either headwinds or tailwinds, depending on how you're positioned. But in the, in the future for SIBO, as well as we're thinking about what do our customers need? What are they demanding? Well, I'll tell you what they're demanding. These are the very same things they're demanding across our consumer landscape. They want everything customized to their preferences. They don't want something that is a pipe of data, a pipe of information. They expect us to know what products they're trading, what their portfolio looks like, how much risk they're willing to take, what types of alpha ideas they want to consume. So all of these things have, have created the need for us to be much more intelligent on our side in how we coalesce the data, curate the data, and deliver the information. It has to be immediately actionable. It has to be real time. It increasingly has to be global. And it most certainly has to be multi-asset class. So that wraps this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back on July 29th, sharing highlights from the rest of the discussion. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.